0: Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Easter Sunday, April 4th, 2021. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, Names. We all have them, right? One of the more exciting and challenging aspects of being a parent is the ability to name your children. Now, some opt for names that have a connection to one's family history. Others go for names with meanings. Uh, People will try to find a name that then can't be used into a mean nickname by other children. Some people just pick names that they like. Uh, When our first son when our son was born, he was our first child. We had a short list of names to choose from: Emily, if she was a girl; Caleb, Noah, Joshua, Ezra, if he were a boy. Since Jody is one-fourth Japanese, we knew that we wanted to give our child a Japanese middle name. And on the girl side, we thought Emily Reiko. Reiko means beautiful child. On the boy side, we settled upon Tadao. Tadao means faithful. Man. And on November 3rd, 1994, Ezra Tadal White came into the world and we loved him. Three years later, our second child was born. Again, we didn't know if we were having a boy or a girl. We still had our girl name ready to go. And honestly, I don't remember if we added new uh, boy names to the list. But praise God, Emily Rako White was born on November 24th. 1997, and I have been blessed to be, as they say today, a girl dad. Pastor John and Cordy recently gave birth to their firstborn, and they knew going in that he would be a boy. Now, the two of them had narrowed their choices to either Julian or Desmond, both wonderful names. However, I began a one-person campaign to get them to seriously consider naming their firstborn Beauregard. Needless to say, that campaign didn't get very far. On March 9th uh, of this year, Julian Bayani Gentry was born. Bayani is Filipino for hero or team player. Cordy is Filipina. Although I still think Bo Gentry would have been a super cool name, right, for a kid. And now, you're starting tight end for the Highland High School Bulldogs, Bo Gentry. Well, Maybe your next child, John and Gordy. Anyway, welcome to Easter Sunday, everyone. What a blessed day it is today. The only thing that would have made it better, of course, is if we would be worshiping together outdoors at Palmdale Amphitheater, which is our tradition. Unfortunately, the state has not yet opened the amphitheater back up for public use, but I'm confident that we will be there next year. Praise God for the vaccine rollout. We'll keep you posted when we're ready to have in-person worship again. In the meantime, please get vaccinated when you have the chance. For the past month and a half, we've been journeying with Jesus in the Gospel of John, and our series title has been Come and See. The name comes from the words that Jesus spoke when he called the very first two disciples in John's Gospel. He invited them to come and see not only where he was staying, but what he was all about. And then week after week, we have encountered uh, Jesus and other significant people and the amazing stories and insight that he shares and teaches them, not only to come and see who he is, but for us to come and see Jesus even more deeply than we may have known before. Now, I started a few moments ago talking about names, and I just want to give you a a little spoiler alert for today's message. I'm going to be focusing on names quite a bit, how important names are, what our name says about us. And as usual, I've got a few stories to share, including this one. When I served at IA United Methodist Church on the island of Oahu, I got to know this wonderful woman, Nolene Vorbau. Noeline was born in Burma and came to the United States for education. She became a doctor. She served in our armed forces. And she was just an amazing, all-around, wonderful person to get to know. I had the privilege of officiating uh, Noeline's mother's memorial service a few years back. Her mother, also born and raised in Burma, had come to live with Noeline and her husband John near the end of her life. And when the service was over and we were sitting at a local restaurant following the service, Noeline told us this amazing story. In Burma, at about the time her mother was born, girls were not valued at all in society. I mean, not only that, but in the village where she was from, uh, where Noeline's grandmother lived, it was believed that a baby wasn't a person until its umbilical cord falls off. Noeline's grandmother actually gave birth. To a number of baby girls, but every time her grandfather drowned those baby girls before their umbilical cords came off. In his eyes, it wasn't considered murder because the baby wasn't yet a person. When Noeline's mother was born, her grandfather just so happened to be away on a trip. And by the time he returned to their village, her mother's umbilical cord had already fallen off. So he took the opportunity to name his one and only daughter Let It Live That's her name Let It Live Can you imagine if that was your name for your entire life and yet this amazing woman Noeline's mother grew up to be the first Christian in her family and changed the direct the trajectory of her entire family's existence Let It Live In the Gospel of John, Jesus has a number of I am statements where he helps shed light on just who he is for his followers. And in chapter 11, a passage we talked about a few weeks ago, Jesus comes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And in a conversation with Lazarus' sister Martha, Jesus tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. And so it's important that we remember that name of Jesus, to keep that in the forefront of our hearts. And minds as we walk through today's Easter story. Now, let me start with a quick reminder. Each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all have their own focus on how they present Jesus and his message. And none of them were written at the time that Jesus lived. I mean, the earliest Gospel Mark was probably written 30 to 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so each of those communities would continue to tell stories and, and, and prioritize which parts of Jesus and teachings that were important to them. John is easily the most unique of all four gospel writers, just in the whole way he sets up his gospel. It's no surprise then that his version of the Easter story is a bit different from the other three. John chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. All right, so let's let's start with our main character here, Mary Magdalene. Now, contrary to popular opinion, Mary Magdalene was not a prostitute. In fact, many scholars believe she was a merchant who helped finance Jesus' ministry. And as it turns out, Magdalene wasn't even her last name. It was the town that she was from, Magdala. Magdala was a small village uh, near Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee, the eastern shores. Sorry, western shores. And it was known for its fishing industry. Now, men were frequently known by their town they were from, right? Jesus of Nazareth, Saul of Tarsus. But it was unusual for a woman to be connected to her town. That's why many scholars think that it was due to her reputation as being a successful merchant. Oh, yeah, that's that's Mary of Magdala. That's Mary Magdalene. And we don't even get to meet Mary in John's gospel until the crucifixion. She's listed there as one of the women who are at the feet of the cross, there for Jesus in his darkest hour. Mary is the only woman to come to the tomb in John's account of the Easter story. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Mary is accompanied by a number of other women, and they come to anoint Jesus' body for burial. But here, in the Gospel of John, she's alone. Not only that, but Jesus' body, according to John, has already been anointed. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were granted permission to do that, and they were men of means, and so quite a bit, a hundred pounds of spices were given for Jesus' anointing. Nicodemus and uh, Joseph were two of the religious leaders who had prior connections to Jesus. Now, it's interesting to wonder what Mary might have thought when she heard the news of what happened to Jesus' body that Friday evening, that some religious leaders had been granted uh, his body for burial. The religious leaders as a whole were the people that were trying to get Jesus killed. I'm sure Mary was wondering who knows what they did with that body. When she arrives at the tomb, John tells us the stone had already been moved away. Von Crow Tipton, chaplain at Furman University, has an interesting insight in feasting on the Gospels. He writes, not one of the disciples came to the tomb expecting resurrection. No one was giddy with excitement to see if Jesus was still there or if it had happened yet or not. No, their assumption upon seeing the stone was that an assault from the outside had happened, that someone had stolen the body. Verse 2. So Mary ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Now it's early. Mary is still trying to process what she has encountered. Obviously, there's been some sort of foul play at work here. So she tells the other two disciples, Peter and the one whom Jesus loved. Now Scholars are divided on who that might be. Some think it may be John himself, the author of the gospel, but we're not sure. Evidently, Jesus played favorites. <clears throat> and what follows is a couple of crazy verses where Peter and the other guy, the one whom Jesus loved, have a race to the tomb. And of course, the one whom Jesus loved, uh, who could be the same guy writing this story, right, ends up winning. In fact, Three times he mentions how faster he was than Peter and how good he was at running uh, because everything's a competition, right? Peter actually goes into the tomb and sees Jesus' grave clothes folded neatly inside but no body. Verse 8 and following. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. It's a peculiar couple of verses, don't you think? I mean, it says that the one disciple saw and believed... But then they just went back to their homes, right? There's there's no hallelujah, there's no he is risen, there is no celebration, nothing to indicate that they actually uh, have experienced the joy of Easter. Von Crow Tipton thinks that what the author meant by this statement was that the disciple believed Mary's report, that the body had been stolen. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Obviously, the two male disciples aren't perceptive enough to see that their compatriot, Mary, was having a bit of a difficult time with all of this. They skedaddle to leave her alone with her tears, weeping outside of Jesus' tomb. Paul Simpson, Duke, in the homiletical perspective section of Feasting on the Gospels, notes that the Gospel of John is the only one that depicts grief As a response to the empty tomb. Right? And the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the women, they are perplexed, they're excited, they are even terrified. But John is the only author who allows Mary's tears to take center stage. And rightly so. But Reverend Duke encourages us not to sentimentalize Mary's grief. He writes. A better course is to credit her with understanding that the absence of his body is catastrophic. There is, not even, there is nothing even residual of him, no touchstone of remembrance, no vestige of actual presence, no place that is not empty of him. His tomb is gutted. It, its horribly open mouth taunts Mary with the news, not just of death, of nothingness, the evidence is that the claims and promises of Jesus were like his tomb, empty. That's a lot to process right there. Verse 11 through 13. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. In ancient Israel, the Ark of the Covenant was the holy relic that housed not only the Ten Commandments, but also Moses' staff and a jar of manna from the wilderness. The Israelites believed that wherever the Ark went, so went The presence of God in fact the top of the ark known as the mercy seat was believed to be where God himself sat on earth and even though you couldn't see God God was present wherever the ark went and guess what was on the top of the mercy seat two angels one at one end and one at the other So when Mary enters the tomb and she's greeted by two angels, one at the head and the other at the feet, I think it's a reference to the Old Testament's Ark of the Covenant. John giving us evidence that Jesus is indeed the presence of God here on earth. But Mary is so overwhelmed with grief, she doesn't even seem to recognize that she is in the company of angels. (laughs) And they ask her, why Why are you weeping? And she responds by saying, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And then we get to the turning point in this Easter story, verses 14 and 15. When she had said this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? For whom are you looking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where have you laid him, and I will take him away. When Jesus called the first two disciples, the first words out of his mouth were, what are you looking for? And then he followed it up with, come and see. Now, after the resurrection with Mary crying in the garden, Jesus asks her two things, why are you weeping? Which is a question of empathy, and whom Are you looking for? Which is a question of desire. Jesus, empathetic with Mary's struggle, reaches out with compassion and he asks her about her pain, genuinely concerned. And at the same time, he also wants to get to the heart of her desire. The narrator tells us that she supposes Jesus is the gardener. Now, I did a little search online this week. I found a number of pieces of art that depicted this scene in the garden. Most of them had Jesus carrying some kind of garden tool, like a shovel that you see in these pictures. Uh, Some had a spade, or uh, what the heck is that, like a pickaxe or something? I have no idea. Maybe that's why Mary thought he was a gardener, because of the garden tools that he had with him. Uh, I don't know. Maybe she was just in the midst of grief and wasn't thinking clearly. Maybe tears had clouded her vision. Maybe the thought of resurrection was so far removed from her that it wasn't even in the realm of possibility. Sometimes, for whatever reason, the presence of the risen Christ often seems hidden, even to us today. At any rate, at the heart of Mary's desire... It was to honor her Lord and Savior, which obviously has had something whose body has been dastardly taken care of. And so she says, tell me where he is that I may take it from here. And that's when the whole scene changes. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, "Rabunai," which means teacher, and when she hears Jesus say her name, suddenly Mary knows exactly who it is. That's Jesus. Dennis Smith, in the storyteller's companion to the Bible, remarks that no one says Mary's name quite like the same way that Jesus says her name. I would imagine that to be the case and it's, it's not that she just suddenly recognizes his voice. She hadn't recognized it when he was speaking to her and she thought he was the gardener. No, she recognized it when Jesus speaks her name. Paul Simpson Duke puts it this way. In John's gospel, this is the moment where the resurrection is declared. No angels have announced that Jesus has risen. His calling of her name is that announcement the announcement is made not by telling her who he is, but by his appeal to who she is. Mary. This is the resurrection moment in John. Earlier in chapter 10, John said this, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He led Lazarus out of the tomb. He leads Mary out of her grief. Father Greg Boyle is a Jesuit priest and the founder and executive director of Homeboy Industries, a gang intervention program in the Boyle Heights neighborhood of Los Angeles. It is his amazingly powerful book. I highly recommend it. If you don't have it, buy it. You will be blessed. Tattoos on the Heart. Father Greg tells a story about the time he met Sniper. He was at Camp felba, a juvenile detention center in LA for delinquent minors, and this particular day he was seated out by the basketball courts. He had come to offer mass for the kids, and usually they wanted to come and talk with him afterwards. So he was out there greeting them. Well, on this particular day, near the end of the line of students, uh, a new kid approached him. he hadn't seen him before, and he was all swagger and pose. His, Head bob, side to side, and he made sure that as he walked up, all eyes were riveted upon him. He sat down to fa- next to Father Greg. They shook hands, but he seemed unable to shake that scowl that was etched across his face. So Father Greg asks, what is your name? Sniper, he sneers. Okay, look, says Greg, uh, I have a feeling you didn't pop out of your mom, and she looks at you and says, sniper, right? No, come on, dog, what's your name? Gonzalez, he says. Okay, <laughs> now, son, I know that the staff will call you by your last name, but I'm not down with that. Tell me, mijo, what, what's your mom call you? Cabron. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Uh, but, son, uh, I'm looking for a birth certificate name here. He softens a bit. It's starting to get to him. But Greg also notices some embarrassment and newfound vulnerability of... Uh, Napoleon, he says, he speaks his name, pronouncing it in Spanish. Wow, said Greg, that's, that's a fine, noble, historic name. But I'm positive when your hefita calls you, she doesn't use the whole nine yardas, right? Come on, mijito, do you have an Apollo? What does your mom call you? And Greg notices him go to some far distance place, this location that he hasn't visited in some time. And his Voice, his body language takes on a whole new being and shape right before his eyes, and he says, "Sometimes, his voice, ever so quiet. Sometimes, when my mom's not mad at me, she calls me Napito." Greg writes, "I watched his, this kid move, transform from sniper to Gonzalez to Capron to Napoleon to Napito." We all just want to be called by the name our mom uses when she's not pissed off at us. I dare say that's the very way that Jesus called Mary's name that first Easter in the garden. And she knew, as soon as she heard it, she knew to the very core of her being, she knew that he knew exactly who she was. Ken Geyer, in his book, Moments with the Savior, puts this scene into a bigger perspective. And he writes about what could have been on this first Easter. In his triumph, Jesus could have paraded through the streets of Jerusalem. He could have knocked on Pilate's door. He could have confronted the high priest. But the first person our resurrected Lord appears to is a woman without hope. And the first words he speaks are, why are you crying? What a savior we serve, or rather, who serves us, for in his greatest hour of triumph, he doesn't shout his victory from the rooftops. He comes quietly to a woman who grieves, who desperately needs to hear his voice, see his face, feel his embrace. The scene ends with Jesus giving Mary a job to do go and tell my disciples. Here's what's coming next. He will be ascending to the Father, and that's exactly what Mary does. I have seen the Lord, she says, and she tells them all about her encounter with Jesus in the garden. It's a powerful moment in Mary's life, the first to give testimony to the risen Christ in the Gospel of John, and it all can be traced back to her name. There's one more story I need to share with you this Easter morning, and it comes from Fred Craddock, a former United Methodist pastor and preaching professor at Candler School of Theology. In fact, uh, Pastor Jim Powell, our superintendent, studied under Dr. Craddock. He writes this, I was in a distant city, and the seminar in which I was involved in ended on a Saturday at lunch. Our host had insisted that if we could possibly stay over on Sunday, it would help our budget because, you know, the airlines give a big break if you stay over on a Saturday night. I could, and I did. But the little motel where I was housed, well, it didn't seem to be in a church district, if you know what I mean. I asked at the counter on Sunday morning, um, is there a church near here where I could walk to? And after a little huddle between them, uh, they said, well, we think there's one about three to four blocks that way, they said, pointing in that direction. Do you know what kind of church it is? What denomination? Uh, no, they said. So I walked and I went in, says Fred. It was a small building, modestly built, one of those that looks like the men of the church had helped build it because it seemed they seemed to love it so much. It was warm and friendly, not elaborate at all for worship. I took my seat a bit early, but it soon began to fill up and soon was totally filled. I would say there are probably 120 people in this small church. At the appointed hour, the choir came down. Following the choir came the minister, in this case, a man. I was absolutely shocked. He was tall. Uh, I forgave him for that. Uh, By the way, Fred was not a tall person. Anyway, I suppose he was about 6'4", he said. He was also very large, maybe 280, 300 pounds. But the most notable feature was his stumbling, lumbering gait. He was awkward, almost falling with his long, useless arms at his side like they were awaiting further instruction. His head was large and misshapen. His hair was askew. He stumbled up the three or four steps to get to the pulpit. And when he turned to face us, I saw his thick glasses and Through them, I could see the milky film over his eyes, one of his eyes going out and nothing coming into the other. When he read, he held the book right up to his nose. When he spoke, the sinews on his neck worked with such vigor as he pushed out the words. It was as if he had just learned to speak as an adult. But I lost all consciousness of that after a while. He read 1 Corinthians 13 and spoke on the subject in the bulletin. But the greatest of these is love. And I have to tell you, it was an unusual thing. I mean, if you had a copy of his sermon, you would say, eh, I'd give it about a C. It was not poetic, it was not prophetic, but it was pastoral. It was so warm and so full of love and affection, it, it was firm. And it had exhortation in it, but, but man, the relationship between those people, the love that he extended as he preached, the love that came back from the people who sat quietly leaning forward, it was captivating, and I was transfixed. What is this? How how could this grotesque creature be so full of love? I honestly didn't understand. And I started remembering things that I shouldn't have remembered, like all those stories about people who have uh, grotesque features. they're, They're sometimes granted special qualities of affection, you know, like Beauty and the Beast or the Hunchback of Notre Dame, so ugly and yet so beautiful in his love and affection. And I thought of, children with Down syndrome and how they have the capacity to love you and grab you and hug you and kiss you and other children just stand off at a distance. Was that what I was seeing here? I mean, this providence of God that grants people who lack the attractiveness on the outside to have the incredible quality of that on the inside. Well, I... I wanted to get acquainted with this extraordinary preacher, so I lingered at the door hoping to invite him to lunch with me. He couldn't go, but as I stood at the door and observed the greetings and hellos, uh, uh, the little words of pastoral care and comfort and respect between him and the members, one woman, I would guess she was probably about 70, shook his hand at the door, and as she spoke with him, she said this, I wish I could have known your mother. I saw that she was having the same trouble that I was. She didn't understand the the source of this love that was emanating from this man. And, And maybe if I knew your mother, then I could understand who you were. And he said to her, my mother's name is Grace. When everybody left and I began to visit with him, we sat on the back pew for a few minutes. And then I said, you know, that was a really unusual response that you gave to that woman. My mother's? name is Grace?" And he said, it is. When I was born, I was put up for adoption with the Department of Family Services, but as you could see, who would want to adopt me? So I went from foster home to foster home, and then when I was about 16 or 17, I saw some young people going into a church, and I wanted to be with the young people, so I went in, and there I met Grace. The incredible grace of God. My brothers and sisters in faith, it is Easter Sunday. The grave is empty. Christ is risen. The resurrection and the life is alive. But even more importantly the risen Christ comes to each and every one of us and Jesus meets us wherever we are with whatever feelings and emotions whatever challenges and struggles we may be going through and if you listen close enough I promise you you will hear him call you by name Mary let it live Napito Jim He calls us by name he gives each of us a part to play in his kingdom, knowing that each of us have been loved unconditionally through God's amazing grace. You see, Jesus fills all of us with the grace and love that we need to become the men, women, and young people that he has created us to be, no matter who we are. No matter what our history with God, with the church, with faith may be, we are known by him totally and completely. That's the good news, that we are not only known, but we are treasured and loved by him completely. Hear him call your name today. How will you respond? Amen.